Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander, and we are Needy in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 172, recorded on January the 24th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on NeedyBintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. This is an interview Haney and I did with Chris Berg, the founder of Data Kitchen. Enjoy 45 minutes of DevOps, data ops, and thoughts on analytics. And we are joined now by Chris Berg of Data Kitchen. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. We've mentioned data ops. We've mentioned DevOps. What is Data Kitchen? And what are you doing? And who are you? How did you come up with Data Kitchen? Oh, boy, that's a lot of questions. So um, who am I? So <laughs> uh, you could guess you could think I'm an old American tech nerd. And so uh, I've been spent 15 years kind of building software at companies like uh, MIT Lincoln Laboratory, NASA, Microsoft, some startups. And then, you know, I managed teams. I did develop. I, I wrote a lot of code. I managed teams that did code. And then about 15 years ago, I got the bright idea that I would get involved in data and analytics. And I thought it would be easy because my kids were small. And I thought I'd kind of like, oh, I'll be home by five. Everything's easy. This data and analytic things, it's nothing. You know, I'm a software engineer. I can handle anything. And so it was rough. Like, it was hard. I had what we now call data scientists and data engineers and people doing data viz working for me. And things were breaking left and right, and we couldn't go fast enough, and everyone had their favorite tool. And, uh, you know, I spent seven years kind of beating my head against the wall on how do you how do you live in this world, right, where your data providers don't care about you, where your customers have an unending stream of requests that they make of you and your team is always wanting to try something new and innovate and so how do you live in that world um and not want to like throw yourself off a bridge uh and so we eventually sold that company and then eight years ago my co-founders and i started data kitchen and um the long the, the the short story the long story is that we wandered a bit but the short story is that we we would not give up this this work, this idea that you should be able to do analytics without sort of needing a therapist, um, that you should be able to go in and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and that, you know, you should be able to execute quickly and, and run a good factory that produces analytics um, and be able to innovate quickly and, and not spend a whole lot of time in meetings. And we worked for a while in consulting. We ended up building a software product. And then six years ago, no one really understood what it was. And we went to a conference and tried to describe it as agile analytic operations or DevOps for data science or Agilitic Ops, which is a really bad name. Um, and then we settled <laughs> on data ops. And so nobody still knew what it was. And so we wrote a manifesto and we've, you know, we've got, we're a software company. So we have a software product and we've done a lot of marketing. We've written two books and tried to educate the market that, um, hey, you should uh, really, these problems are not going to be solved by going to a therapist. They're going to be solved by thinking about the nature of your work in a different way. Um, and that if you do that, you actually end up being happier and more productive. Your customers are more satisfied and you deliver and aggregate a lot more insight to your uh, customers. Reasonable. I, I think I'm going to steal that, that you should be able to do analytics without going to a therapist. Yeah, that is so accurate. Yes. <laughs> it so, is. It is. 
And actually, I have data to back it up. So we did a survey uh, with uh, Data.World, a consulting company, and we surveyed 600 data and analytics professionals, and 70, 70%, 79% wanted um, their job to come with a therapist because they were so stressed out. So, yeah, it's uh, and I mean, I w- actually, the, the, the sad thing is I was not surprised at that. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's about right, you know. Yeah, but it's a bit of a scary number, I have to say. It's quite high. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's a very hard position in because mm-hmm. you're, um, it's a position of influence and it's, inc- it's much more a team sport than it was an individual um, mm-hmm. uh, skill. And you're kind of incented to be a hero and get stuff done. Um, but, you know, when you do heroism, you end up taping together a system that could possibly cause you problems down the line. And, and then you're sort of hoping things work and not knowing they work. And so the ideas, um, I think, that involve data ops are very much stolen from DevOps and honestly lean manufacturing. I, I think they're kind of on yeah. a continuum of ideas. And so um, sort of the very simple way I think of it is, you know, I think of it from a manager's perspective. I got a group of people. And they've got different skills, but they're all kind of working on the same technically complicated thing. And that technically complicated thing could be an assembly line where you're making an automobile. It could be a software product with a front end and a back end, or it could be um, a data and analytic process to get insight out of data. And all those things mean that you should manage in a particular way, like you should manage in a safe culture or people should be able to point out problems. Right. That's a really important thing. Um, maybe in your political party, people, you know, another, there's lots of other ways to organize people like in politics or arts groups. But like when you've got a bunch of people working on a shared te- technically complicated thing, um, you know, being able to work quickly and get feedback from your customers, being able to measure and iterate and improve all those principles apply to assembly lines, to software projects and to um, the work that we do in data and analytics. Indeed. Uh, and, and before we, we kicked on the recording, um, I know that I am Simon. Uh, we've read the, uh, the Unicorn Project and the Phoenix Project. Haney, have you read them as well? No, I haven't read those two ones, but I've read the DevOps Handbook, which is kind of um, it, the same writers. So it's the same principles, but looking at it from a maybe a bit more structured and process oriented way. Yeah, it's, it's not a fiction book in the in Yeah, the no. And what we 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 also did a couple of episodes discussing DevOps, and I mean that's mm-hmm. probably how we managed to hook you into this, Henny, since you're you're into DevOps. And yeah, DevOps is is fairly simple to grasp. You have basically a pipeline that you push your your stuff through, but it doesn't really account for the the issues inherent when you have data inside as well, because data kind of comes at an angle. And mm-hmm. there's always the ubiquitous quality issues. And mm-hmm. that's when I, I found the whole data ops thing and tried to explain it in one of our, our um, episodes. I'm not entirely sure that I did a very good job. Could mm-hmm. you walk us through where uh, DevOps basically ends and data ops begins and how they interact with each other? Yeah. So I, I think maybe the simple way is to think that 
data ops is more a many-to-many problem than a one-to-one problem. And you know, data ops has got two pipelines, whereas DevOps got one. Maybe that's a simple way. Mm-hmm. So if you start off with DevOps, you have a CI and CD pipeline, right? You're trying to maximize the value stream or the work that gets from your developers into production quickly. Um, and so that, that's actually true in data ops as well, right? I think. Um, and uh, the second pipeline in data ops is, is you have a production pipeline because data is manufactured and the raw materials that you manufacture are not in your control as a team. And so how you run that like a factory is much more prevalent in the data and analytics world than it is in software. Because, um, and the idea of two pipelines also extends to sort of two iteration cycles. Like in data, in software, you're building an experience that a user is gonna have, and you're trying to iterate through it to get the best experience in some ways. So you're building code, give it to someone, they like it, they don't like it. And you're kind of doing that in data and analytics. Maybe it's charts and graphs or a spreadsheet but you're also iterating with the data itself because you don't know if the data can actually support the decisions that you're trying to get. You know, it may be predictive, it may not. And so that also is another iteration cycle. And then the further complexity of data ops versus DevOps is DevOps, in every DevOps teams I've been, there's been, you know, sort of a there's been a, a relationship between the back-end team and the front-end team that's pretty one-to-one. You know, you've got the UI team and you've got the back-end team and maybe you have a DevOps team over there. And so that's sort of true, but in a lot of data and analytics, it's a many-to-many relationship. So there's <clears throat> multiple teams that are putting data together and then there are teams, many teams that are taking advantage of that data. It's like a hub-and-spoke model. Um, and so many organizations will have a chief data officer, an IT team, build a data lake, data warehouse, put all the data in one place, and then all over the organization, people are. And, and so there's just much more people using and understanding data. And so it ends up being more of a many-to-many problem than a back-end to a front-end one-to-one problem. So, but like I said, I, I'm not too big on language. I mean, I think the core idea is the same. In that, you know, measure, iterate, be safe, learn, like those things really matter much more um, in managing your team. And I think, um, you know, but I also think what's also really interesting is that if you talk to data and analytic people and talk to software and IT people, you know, we watch the same TV, we look alike, we kind of talk the same, but like (laughs) somewhere at 22 or 23, the, the roads branched. And like they, there's not a lot of cross pollination, and so you're, um, and maybe in the past few years there have been some software people have gone over to do cool stuff, but they're really largely separate. And so in some ways, DevOps and the idea of agility in software and IT systems is a decade ahead of where it is mm-hmm. in data systems, and just the acceptance of what you have to do and the importance of what you have to do. That is so true, and I I think it's very well put that it is more a this hub spoke or many to many issue that has to do with data, and that might be something we don't think about so much. There's so many more people using the data and even generating the data. Even if we think from the systems perspective, it is often like many systems that we are gathering data from, as well 
uh, even not looking just on the people perspective, but also the systems are many and versatile as well. Yeah, and, and one of my pet peeves with DevOps is that a lot of DevOps teams forget that they have the data and analytic team as a customer. So they, they talk yes. about, yes, the infinity diagram between dev and ops, but man, there's another infinity cycle between your typical transactional database and the, the, the team that's actually using it. And so like I've run companies that have, you know, they, they, they tout being agile, they have agile all over their development process, but yet, wow, they, they change their core systems database left and right. And the data and analytic team is sitting there Friday afternoon going, why are there two new fields? Why did this field change? Mm -hmm. Oh my, I wish I would have known about that ahead of time. Now I got to work the weekend to fix it. And so from your DevOps, um, uh, from your DevOps customers, remember that you have a data customer who's trying to get insight out of the data and don't forget about them. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other approach I've been seeing is that, well, uh, it's kind of working in a separate almost like environment. That's not the right way to say it, but uh, one point might be that we are not kind of connecting the all to all the systems that we should be connecting as well. And that's kind of the other end that uh, the DevOps side is just playing in their own playground and not thinking that, uh, hey, there could be some valuable data here as well. And then somebody has to come around and really looking for it and digging for it and like, hey, you have this data that we would really need. Yeah, yeah. And like they used to, 10 years ago, people used to talk about data exhaust as if it's pollutants mm. that comes out of a car. And, and so that's probably not the right way to think of data as exhaust, right? It's actually a yeah. potential generator of huge value. And so exactly. keeping it, cleaning it, organizing it is what the data and analytic teams do. But like the people who are in charge of gathering the data sometimes still treat it as exhaust and not to be worried about. And, and that's changing in a lot of companies and there's data culture yeah. changes that go with it. Um, but that's in some ways really what's happened in the data analytics in the 15 years I've been is like when I first started to explain people what I did and like my short was like, I do data and analytic work. And they're like, what's that? And I go, oh, it's charts and graphs. Okay, you do charts and graphs. Okay, I get it. <laughs> and, and so comp I think, you know, people, there's a lot more master's degrees in data science, a lot more people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have entered in the data in the analytics industry in the past few years. And so it's it's really seen, I think, as a driver of value as opposed to like exhaust and, you know, uh, furniture. Indeed, but, but still we have this in interesting divide between, well, let's say devs and, and data analytics people, because uh, just just the, the concept of quality, what does quality mean to entirely different things if you're talking to a developer or if you're talking to a data person? And yeah. in, in many many ways, I, I see that people come with their preconceptions. I say quality, i.e. you know what I'm talking about, and that is not necessarily mm -hmm. the case. So how, how do we bring DevOps and, and data ops to an organization? It's, it's not about the tooling. It's not about the tech. It's about the people. So how, how have you created the, the a package, if you will, to enact data ops in, in a company? Well, we actually have had to work quite a bit on it, right? Because we're, um, the, the sort of transformation that companies do is very similar 
to the transformation of data ops is very similar to the transformation companies do with DevOps. And so um, like about four or five years ago, I went to Gene Kim's, who's the Phoenix Projects Conference, the DevOps Enterprise Summits, and I saw all these stories of companies doing their DevOps transformation. And I was inspired by it. And I'm like, oh, we need to do that for data and analytics. So I actually called up Gene Kim and said, look, these DevOps principles, they apply to data. And he goes, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. Um, and so um, <laughs> I was like, and then so he, actually there's a book in the Phoenix Project where I sort of helped explain to him a little bit of how the data and analytics systems work. And he put a chapter in in that book, um, not the Phoenix Project, the um, the one after that. I forget the name of it, not the Phoenix. One, the Unicorn the one Project. The Unicorn Project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. Um, you know, I think organizations have to think about this as the same pattern of like, look, you're changing not you're making something important that's not important, which is automation and testing and mm-hmm. um, a lot of what people consider tape in data and analytics systems. You're saying this tape is really important, um, and that happened in software. Like when I was, I, I ran software development teams in 1999. We, I had 35 engineers that worked for me, and I had one release engineer to our SaaS website, and he was paid less than everyone else. So 35 to one. <laughs> and yeah, now you're like, oh my God. And so, but that was pretty good. That was common, actually. Um, and we could ship software like every four months, which was actually pretty darn good in 1999. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, now, if I go and put that on my resume, no one would hire me. They go, four months? Are you insane? And like you have <laughs> a ratio of one to 35 of your DevOps persons to engineers. What are you nuts? Um, and so, so like what happened? Like why did that? Because I was like in a startup. It was 1999. I was like a cool guy um, at that time, or at least I thought I was. Like So something changed and people's perception has changed in the value of shipping faster and the ability to ship faster and the ability to learn faster. And I think that's happening in data and analytics is that um, people are learning the value of speed and, and the value of quality. And so, and and even that term quality, I don't wanna get all Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, but the term quality itself in data means something, like you said, completely different. And it means different things for different people. Like there's data quality, like there's the six dimensions of data quality from DEMA, which I think is, you know, how to actually tell, you would be surprised or maybe scared of, of all these data and analytics systems that are completely open-ended. They get data in, they pass it through, and they have no idea if it's right. Like probably the majority of systems, they can't tell while it's running if it's correct before their customers see them. And they rely on their customers to yell at them to go back and fix it. And so... Think, think of that as a, think of that you're building your company's website or your, your, your technical IT product. And yeah, we don't really do, we don't really QA, we release it and then our customers yell at us. <laughs> and so that's the state yeah. of data and analytics pretty much. Um, you know, wait till the customers yell, uh, fix it fast, and then hope that it, they don't find it again. Yeah, I mean, so, so many times that I've come into a project and go, okay, so where are your domain experts? What do you mean domain experts? Well, your data, well, while, yes, it compiles, but is it okay? Is yeah. this what you're looking for? I, I don't know. I didn't work with the data. And suddenly we have this silo reasoning again, just like you were talking about, Haney. Yeah. And the, if there are domain experts too, they, 
they become the bottleneck, yeah. right? Because they know. And so how do you take those bottlenecks out of your system and, and make them? Because the bottlenecks often are not data processing bottlenecks. You know, technology sort of largely alleviated those. It's really sort of human bottlenecks. You know, people who know the data, people who know all where all the things that are acting upon the data live. Where's your ETL code? Where's your data science models? Where's the visualization? Where's the glue code? Those people get really busy and then really stressed. And then they answer the recruiter's call and take the next job. <laughs> and then like, oh, no. <laughs> we're back to the inadvertent uh, data hero. Uh, exactly what we want to try to avoid. But still, we find somewhere someone is going to turn into a hero, either by choice or by happenstance, basically. Yeah. And, I, you know, honestly, I look at that as a management problem. Because I've had to change my management style. Like I will publicly reward heroism. Say, okay, thank you for doing that. Thank you for working the weekend. And then privately, I'll go to them and say, why did you have to work the weekend? Like, what is it that you could have done to avoid that? Um, and so sometimes, you know, a percentage of the time, it's unavoidable. Like stuff happens. But could you have built a system that allowed you to find it earlier? Or could you have negotiated with your customer to say like, well, maybe I'm going to do this this week and do it next week. And so because um, heroism leads to burnout and burnout leads to people leaving. And so we want to have a little bit of heroism, not all the time. And and so uh, and that's been helpful for me because everyone wants if you're working the whole weekend to get something done. Yeah, it's awesome that you did that. But like it's also there's some greater system. There could be a greater systemic problem that causes that to happen that you want to avoid in the future. Yeah, exactly. It's like we want to spend time making it so that we do not have to stretch in the future in that way, like spend the time today so that the future will be easier. Yeah. To handle. Yeah. And like one of my, my co-founders says, we talk a lot about testing data and checking data. Mm. And we say data tests are the gift that you give to your future self. Because <laughs> you do it now and you don't know when it's going to pay off. And, um, and you, you, you know, that if you find out on Thursday and you could fix it Thursday afternoon, that means you don't spend the weekend. And um, unfortunately, a number of data and analytic organizations still do that. And it's also a team problem. They're on it's Saturday morning. There's 20 of the most talented people on the data team on the call trying to find the data issue. Half awake, typing here, typing there. Um, and that is a net decrease in productivity. And actually, if you look at the productivity of data and analytic teams, it's not very good um, because not because they're not working. It's because they're reacting a lot and and um, or they're trying to do things that aren't actually getting into the hands of the customer. They're doing work that never gets anywhere because um, they build a model that never gets into someone's hands. I was just about to bring up the, the concept of technical debt, which is a, an important aspect of DevOps. But I, I find that technical debt is even, it's a bigger issue with data because you have more data, you have more places where things can go wrong and it is so much more difficult to have automated tests. Yeah. Um, that means that you need to take a step back and spend a pretty serious amount of time working with your data and making sure that it is good to go. Yeah, because you, you have technical debt on on the systems that are acting upon data. And then you have data debt on the data itself because it's imperfect. 
And so some, and so you've got to actually work both those down. And, and so, um, you know, one of the ways in which we try, or we think it's important to help both is to know that you have it by building automation around your systems. And so one point of automation in a very simple way is if you're going to put something in production, make sure that you can do what software engineers call regression testing or end-to-end -end testing. And in the data and analytic world, they call it impact analysis. And so a lot of data and analytic systems have, you know, there's a data person putting the data together. There's a data science person segmenting or modeling the data. There's a visualization person building the nice bar chart. And then there's a governance person making sure it's all cataloged. And so you got these four roles. Sometimes they expand and contract. But like a lot of times I do my data work on the data side and I have no idea what the impact is on all the other people. I throw it over the wall and then maybe it works. And so it's not just sort of like front and back end. It's like levels and, and graphs of relationships. And you really need to test it to do the impact. And then in terms and those systems themselves, like any software driven system, need to be improved. Right. If you want to iterate quickly, sometimes you're not doing it the best way. You want to have time to refactor and improve. Um, and the second part with data debt is your if you don't know if the data isn't good, you don't know if there isn't problems. Um, you can't feedback to your suppliers saying um, there's a problem. You know, you're late. This data is meaningless. Um, I'm doing all this work to fix it for you. And so um, because you're constantly if you think of the Toyota manufacturing case, like you have suppliers in an auto manufacturing plant, right? And, and manufacturing plants sort of assemble things together. And it's very similar to what happens in data and analytic pipelines. You're assembling things. But if your raw materials aren't good, well, that's a problem, right? And so um, you need to work with your suppliers to improve those. Um, and sometimes it's not constant. They improve them, then they decay. Uh, and so you got to be aware of when things. So testing the data in production is also really important. Um, and so I think, uh, and also the last part too is um, how you work with your customers. And so what happens in a lot of data and analytic teams, like what happened in software teams is they don't trust the team who's delivering it. So they stuff more requirements than they possibly could handle. And then they say, well, um, you know, I got my shot. So here's all the things you got to do. And you don't, and then you're, you're, you spend six months building something. Oops, it's wrong. You know, you got 20% of it right. And, and so working to, with your customer to have the short cycle time, deliver something in days or weeks, iterate upon it. And then during each one of those iteration cycles, decide, are you going to, are you going to do new things or are you going to put down your technical debt or your data debt or, even documentation, governance, all the other stuff that could be seen as secondary um, and making that part of the discussion. And I found that that works really well. Like, okay, we're doing some new stuff. Okay, we're doing a little technical debt. We're doing some data debt. We're doing, you know, we're doing some governance and helping. That's very helpful um, with when your customers don't want to stuff the pipe full of requests and make you go off for three months. And, you know, uh, they asked for 10 things, but only really needed one. Does that makes sense. You guys are nodding. It makes yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> it makes it just brings this silence like yeah yeah you guys are having you guys are having shell shock you're like you remember this <laughs> yeah exactly I've, I've been at this since 1997 um haney is a fairly new and somewhat fresh-eyed if you will yeah i haven't gotten the chance to see all the historian baggage <laughs> no uh, you're nowhere near as cynical as i am either so <laughs> exactly. i think that's a good thing <laughs> Yeah, it only takes one or two projects to see. It doesn't take that long to actually see the problem, yeah. unfortunately. That is true. <laughs> and sometimes fresh eyes are like, oh, like there, there's a lot of master's degrees in data science and engineering who are very frustrated because they go in with like, I'm going to change the world with data. And then they're like, they're sitting in meetings all day and, and you know, they've only gotten one thing done into production in the last year. And they're like, what happened? Um, I thought I was going to change the world. And so... Um, and it, you know, I, I, I just think that this is something that good organizations are fixing and it happened in software and it's going to happen in data and analytics. And I think the age of sort of hope and heroism is done and the age of, um, sort of thinking and process and teams and automation is, is coming. And I think it has to, or else, you know, there's, or else we're not going to realize the promise of data that is out there. I, I think you're very right. And it's kind of, I, I think it's inevitable and it's already in the process of, of getting more and more, more kind of attention as well. It's like you see all the good things on the DevOps side for the software project. So why wouldn't you use the same, at least principles on the data side as well, yeah. rather than bang your head against the wall? Yeah. And you're at lunch, you're, you're talking about the same movie at lunch your DevOps guys picks up his phone and pushes something to production and the data engineer goes, yeah. yeah, it takes me four months to get 30 lines of SQL into production. And they're like, Oh, something's wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What, what would you like? Well, can you kind of pinpoint one of the like most essential things in the very beginning? If somebody is now thinking like, I want to get started with data ops in my organization, like what is the one place to start? Is there like a single point where to get kind of the footing? First yeah. Right? Yes. So where I started was not doing anything technical. So in 2006, I did a quality circle with a spreadsheet. And every time we had a problem, I put it in the spreadsheet. And then every month we go and look at all the problems and pick one thing to fix. And we fixed it in a, almost always in an automated way. And so like, I think that is, that has two net effects. One is it makes you list the, your problems and react to them in a non-judgmental, non-shame and blame way. And I think if you yeah. just start that, that has the cultural effect of because data people are also have a lot of shame because they're afraid that they're giving wrong data. And I, I've done this like there's nothing worse than um, having 5000 people use your data and then realize that you've been giving them wrong data for a couple months. It's so it's really bad. <laughs> and, and so if you can take that fear out of the equation for people, then you start to see better effects. And so. Uh, just looking at your errors and fixing them, it seems like really trivial is like, a, um, and fixing them in an automated way is a very helpful thing to do. Um, and, and because the other part is there's a lot of people who are unfortunately trying to be, um, 
put their head in the sand or not observing or not noticing where the problems are because it is quite scary. Like, you know, um, imagine I've, I've had scenes of people describing I'm walking through the lunchroom and I know that everyone is looking at me going, you bonehead, you got our data wrong. (laughs) He's like, Oh man, that's harsh. That doesn't really encourage to look at any issues in the it data doesn't, doesn't. if you have that feeling. It doesn't. And I think that is so important to really change the culture and to get this sense of, hey, we can look at these issues and we can fix them more more than just like uh, when there is the issue, we are then like scrambling to get it fixed, but actually having the intention to, hey, let's fix this, fix this in an automated way so that we don't have to fix this same issue another time in the future. And without having the knee-jerk reaction that is also yeah. very prevalent, especially in the data side of things. Holy crap, we just pushed something bad to production and it's 60 billion rows. We need to fix it now instead of taking a step back yeah. and, okay, so how do we solve this? Because it kind of drives me to the next question. If you were to mess something up in a build in an application, well, yes, that sucks, but you get to do it again. If you have on the order of billions of rows, how do you how do you deal with that kind of amount of data and, and making sure that your your tests and regression and all that stuff actually works? Yeah, I, I think fortunately the cloud and technology has made the cost of disk and the cost of CPU really cheap, and so the cost of redoing your data when it has something wrong is. Um, much, much cheaper than you think. And in fact, rebuilding a database from scratch or even from a checkpoint, uh, rebuilding a whole data and analytic system is um, the compute cost is much less than if you add up the time of all the people to, to do it. Uh, and so the change in perception that I like is to say, your well, the most expensive resource you have is your people's time. And the cheapest resource is disk and CPU. So if something breaks, rebuild it. Um, and I've been a big, for more technical uh, way, I've been a more fan of, you know, if you know functional programming, I've been more of a fan of functional data engineering, where you can really, you always are starting from immutable data and rebuilding. And that way, if you screw something up, you just start. And also the idea of um, A and B testing or having variants available, because uh, a lot of times, you have, if you have a thousand people looking at your analytics and you want to try something new, well, have one for those thousand or 999, but take the one that you want to get feedback on and give them a variant. And and so, you know, making lots, handling different versions and A and B tests, I think is important. And so um, I think that's what's, because it was very different 10 years ago when you had to talk to a database salesman because you had a limit of the number of CPUs you could use. <laughs> and database salesmen yeah. are, they're either, they're very intimidating because they're usually like former sports people or they're really good looking or both. And and so like as a nerd, you come in with this like really <laughs> good looking former sports person saying you're running into your CPU license. It's like, so now you don't have to. Now you just go to the AWS console and go from four to 20 in the back. <laughs> so... I've never had to meet these database salespeople. Oh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, don't. don't. <laughs> I mean, maybe, you know. <laughs> no, I'm, you're not wrong. Definitely not. Especially if they work for a company with a red logo that starts with O. 
Oh yeah, yeah, the Oracle yeah. salesman are the worst. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm so happy that you mentioned something in passing. Uh, functional data program or functioning data. What data is it engineering. Functional data, data engineering. Yes, it's. I've read about it, and that's where it stops because I've never seen anyone actually implement it. I love the idea and I love the the theory of it, but I haven't seen any real um, implementations. Oh yeah, see, I guess. I've been doing it for years because it's because it makes sense <laughs> and like treating your data as a manufacturing process, having multiple pipelines is it. And so, um, you know, I've spoken about it. Other people have spoken about it and it's sort of there's a collection of ideas on how to deal with complicated things that are moving like data ops is one idea, taking a DevOps idea and applying it to data. There's another one called data mesh, which is the ap application of domain driven design into it um you know the functional programming functional data engineering like i'm a fan of these that because i think they really help deal with complexity because that's the of data analytic systems are wickedly complicated because it's lots of data and lots of different tools on the assembly line and lots of different servers and so lots of different people and so they're just super complicated in a way that even more so than software systems i think so, and also the fact that like data used to be, I get my reports refreshed every week to every day to <laughs> if it's three seconds late, what's the problem? And, you know, why does, um, you know, I grew up sort of object oriented programming and I like objects and they're still good. Um, but like the idea of functional programming makes systems that are more reusable and um, sort of composable than I think um, objects do and so i think the software paradigm is good and i think the data paradigm is good just because disk is cheap um uh cpus are cheap and having multiple versions of your same thing that you pass through different data functions really makes your life so much easier absolutely um i'm gonna go and guess that you were around when again oracle pushed out the the first oracle 8 where they had the object uh, oriented program inside of oracle yeah that didn't quite work out. Now, there there are um, specific object-oriented databases that work fine, but from a relational database perspective, trying to force object orientation on the relational database tends to, well, crash and burn. Yeah, I, I did my share of programming in an ORM, an object relational management system, and different versions of it. And I think I tried to mine have written one myself. And yeah, I mean, but, you know, there are there's certainly a lot of softwares written and it's not necessarily that objects are bad. It's just that, um, you know, we, we have to learn how to these different, you know, I guess probably mixed paradigm object and functional programming is good, but yeah, I think in transaction, like in, in data and analytics is usually, you know, broadly speaking, the way people think of it as you've got transactional systems and analytic systems, right? And in transactional systems, you've got, relational tables that have integrity and you're trying to have one version of truth, right? One, one version of, but in analytic systems, you have multiple copies, the data is formatted in a different way. It's more about queries than transaction speeds and like the, the paradigm is shifted. And so I think, um, it, 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 you know, in both functional ideas apply. So I'm, I'm going to go into the last thing. And th this is a bit of a contentious one. Because depending on where you look at it, you kind of get different answers. Data mesh. Everybody and their cat is talking about data mesh. And I hear good things and I hear bad things. What's your take on 
on data mesh and on from from what perspective are you looking at it? Well, I, I, the first perspective is that every word in tech gets polluted to a degree that it becomes almost unusable. So it's like um, words in tech are gas and they like fill the available space. And so like I, I was like I wrote the first Wikipedia article on data ops and now like it's un, it's beaten all the people are applying data ops to things I haven't know what what means. Right. And so um, so number one is words in tech get beaten up because marketers get a hold of it and want to apply it as a way to generate leads for their sites, which is fine. It's capitalism. I'm a capitalist. Um, so uh, so there's the marketing game around words. So I think we all have to realize that that's sort of that's its own world. But like what is data mesh technically? Well, I think I'm a believer in it because I've done it for years um, and I didn't have the have the name on it. Um, and it's the idea that, number one, in an organization, you need to understand your data. And it takes time, months or years for people to understand your data. So if you've got a team that understands a subset of your data, they are much more productive. And another team that understands another subset. And sometimes those teams actually have different customer bases. Sometimes they cross, but sometimes they have different customers. So if you have smaller teams that are more tightly integrated on data sets, they actually get more done. And so I think that's the idea of sort of build it and they'll come or throwing all the data in a lake and everything will be great. I, I just haven't seen. And so having people who know the data and work with the data work together, and that means working in a specific domain. And so that's, to me, that's if you can have data in a domain, then you can start having domain oriented design. And I think um, I, I did it just because I started my career in U.S. healthcare data. And it's very, the data is really complicated and you can't know all U.S. healthcare data. You can only know a subdomain of it. So how, how do you handle when, when you need to work with multiple domains? That's where I, I see data mesh become Again, it's not a technical issue. It is a managerial issue and, and it, a policy issue, if you will. It's partly two, two ways. Um, so one is, is where you have, so in data and analytics, you have entities that you're analyzing. And those entities could be customers or products or you know, physicians or whatever. And so those are often shared across domains, right? That, 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 and so there's a subset of data and analytics called mastering or master data management. Mm -hmm. But even then, that's partly you want to, um, and one way that I've done it is you've got multiple what are called fact tables with shared dimensions. That's one way of doing it. Another way is that they actually have teams who are, their domain is mastering, and they there's an order of operations in constructing the domains. That's one way. So uh, entities, entity resolution. And then the other way is how one domain links to another, because it's not about one domain, it's sort of about a, a mesh of data meshes and how they relate and how the building of one affects the building of another. And so having the idea of ports and connectivity and being able to say, I'm, I've done with my part of the mesh, now you can go off and use yours, I think is, is important. And so we're doing a data mesh project at a large pharmaceutical company where they, you know, they're trying to do an enterprise-wide data mesh. And, and part of it is that, that idea of, number one, how do you organize the things that you're analyzing from a from a um, from a subject matter 
uh, dimension standpoint? And then how do, how do you build these things in coupling with each other so they all work in the, in the right way? And so, um, but I do think it, it does, it, nothing ever is perfect in tech, right? And so uh, <laughs> it has its flaws and it can be done poorly, right? And, and so, mm -hmm. uh, and I think like a lot of things, it requires judgment. And, and you can't just say, everything's going to be great if we go to a data mesh. The, you know, there's, there's, it, it's really about how you apply ideas and how well you get the team working. And to me, I, I think that's honestly my theme is if you can have the way people work together actually dominate so much of this that um, if you get that right, you'll people will eventually, like I, I did domain-oriented design for 15 years. I didn't know it was called that. It just like made sense. Like I wouldn't have done it any other way. <laughs> and I'm sure lots of people are doing data meshes. They just don't call it that because <laughs> uh, it makes sense. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I totally agree. And as, as we said from the beginning, we are going to go, go off on a tangent and we're going to run out of time. Haney, do you have anything more to add before we close down? Yeah, no, it's been really interesting discussions and I really like that we ended up here in the data mesh in the end. It's, it's cool to hear that there this is happening and, you know, it's it's all really really interesting and i'm sure we could go on for another 45 minutes yeah, as well yeah. if we decided to <laughs> and well I, I just want to end with a happy note like i think i think data and analytics is a really good career for people like i think it's yes. um i think it's got a lot of potential it's not going away in the next six months um and we've only really touched at the beginning and i think it's a really good career for devops people because i think there's a yes. lot of like i i, I uh that, that's so when we first started talking about it at this conference, I was working on how to describe what we do. And I talked to like a hundred people. And then one guy came up and I spent 10 minutes talking to him. And he goes, oh, that just sounds like you're doing DevOps for data. And I was like, yes, exactly. And he goes, well, why didn't you say that? You're just doing DevOps for data. And I was like, because <laughs> nobody here knows what DevOps is. <laughs> and so like DevOps people sort of get data ops, like there, there's some differences, mm -hmm. right? But like get it in a more intuitive way. Um, and I think that's, there's a lot of power in that. And, and that's all we're saying is like, take, devote a percentage of your team to automate and test and, and make the system better. And which is the same idea in DevOps and just do that. And, and it's actually a really rich career and you can actually have really profound effects on the lives of the data and analytic teams and their customers. And it's fun. And versatile. It's fun, yeah. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good area to nerd out in. Super. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fantastic discussion. I've learned a ton. Uh, I I told Haney that I would be asking all the stupid questions, and I think I I've done that. Um, I don't think you, you did. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> delivered all the, the great answers. Is the data mesh bullshit or not? That's not a dumb question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair I enough. don't think so either. No. Yeah. And it, as always, it's it's complex, but it's it's so great to to talk to someone who's been at this for a while because again, it's not about the tech, it's about the people. And that's where we make the the biggest impact. Again, thank you so much for coming on. We will be back in another week with another episode. Until then, have a good one. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Hidibin Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at 
podcast at nidipotech.com. <laughs>